If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For Britain... The winter of 1962 and 63 was the worst in living memory. The Solent froze, icebergs stalked the Irish Sea, and the nation ground to a frozen halt. But as Juliet Nicholson chronicles in her new book, Frostquake, as Britain shivered under a blanket of snow and ice, new cultural and political forces were beginning to challenge the status quo. As the Beatles, David Bailey and Mary Quant began to shake things up. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Juliet reveals how those few frozen months at the start of the 60s changed modern Britain for good. Juliet, your new book, Frostquake, tells a story of the great freeze that paralysed Britain over the winter of 1962 and 63. And it also chronicles uh, how the country emerged that spring and summer, a different country. Now, um, before examining all that in more detail, I, I wonder if you could paint a picture of how bad the winter of 1962-63 was. How, how unprecedented was this weather? 
There had obviously been uh, lots of snowy winters in people's memories before they arrived at 1962. Uh, there was a particularly ferocious one in 1947, which I think made an enormous impact, particularly because it was only a couple of years after the ending of the Second World War and deprivation and um, misery were still there and uh, the weather on top of it, extremely cold and snowy winter. But the weather, the winter of 1962 was worse, uh, partly because it was colder and partly because it never stopped. So what happened was there had been um, really the final of these London smogs in the December of 62, um, during which thousands of people lost their lives through inhaling this terrible polluted air, really came about through the um, coal fires that were burning in cities. And uh, to see people walking around the London streets in December 62 in masks was not an unusual thing. Uh, but on Boxing Day 1962, the snow began to fall and it was a storm that came over from Europe, from Russia, from Siberia itself and uh, began to fall that day and did not stop falling until the sort of first 10 days of March. And the effect was um, enormous on the, on the land. There were icebergs in the River Mersey in Liverpool. There were icebergs down south in the Solent. Um, the sea itself froze for a good mile out. You could walk on waves all the way through. And the wind chill factor was the equivalent to um, the loss of 80% of body heat, at which stage flesh freezes. So it was quite some winter. So can you paint a picture of what it was like to live through that for three months? I mean, how much um, misery did this weather event inflict upon Britons? Well, obviously... Snow and ice immediately uh, put a, a stop to the infrastructure of travel. So roads were impassable, aeroplanes, air, air, airports were, were closed, Gatwick was completely um, iced over and impossible to use, trains couldn't run on their tracks. And of course, this meant that Delivery lorries couldn't reach their, the shops. Uh, there was um, uh, shelves in, in the shops were, were empty. If you were old, it was very, very difficult to get out in this te these terrible conditions, even if there was anything to buy. Meals on Wheels did their very best, but they couldn't get round everybody. People died in drifts in their cars and to compound it there was a um, trade union strike of the electrical union and so the uh, national grid faltered or was interrupted by this uh, by this strike for, uh, for uh, pay rise and uh, so it's 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 uh, it's hard to emphasize quite how um, paralyzing this weather was, but it was national and um, ubiquitous and and lengthy. Uh, 
weeks and weeks and weeks of this deprivation. And as you outline in the book, this is something that had a significant impact on animals as well as humans, wasn't it? I mean, I wonder if you could just describe the impact on wildlife for this weather. Absolutely. Well, uh, if you were a hedgehog or, or a squirrel, you, you, you knew what to do. You went underground um, with enough uh, enough lunch and supper for a few months. But above ground, um, there were sites, terrifying sites of seagulls um, caught frozen within a wave. Um, birds were caught in, a, in freezing gusts of wind and plummeted to their death right there, stone dead. Um, sheep were turning cannibalistic. Uh, New forest ponies were feral. People were told to be careful if they were out with a shopping bag with food in case they'd be attacked by one of these ponies. Um, Kestrels were seen on domestic bird tables, desperate for food. So it was not good to be either human or animal uh, during such conditions, unless you were a child, of course, when you were constantly sledding, snowballing, um, and even and even skiing. So uh, <laughs> it was not that the the beauty of the snow, uh, which began to pull, I think, for adults, was terrific for kids, especially if it meant not going to school. I was going to say it must have been a like a three month uh, snowball fight for some of them. They must have uh, really enjoyed that. It, it was. I was one of those. <laughs> I was eight, and, and um, we we built some amazing structures out of snow when I was little. Um, but I think my parents weren't enjoying it quite so much as I was. And um, um, you write in the book that uh, for many older people, the, the terrible weather signalled. Uh, the ending of a way of life, the loss of familiarity, of certainty, of, of the old way of life. I mean, I guess this speaks to one of the main themes of, of your book, that uh, Britain in the early 60s was a nation in transition, like one on the cusp of a great social and, I guess, political change. I mean, what were the older generations scared of losing in the early 60s? Mm. I mean, that's such a good question. Um, I think that um, it wasn't so much the fear um, of change exactly, but really that so many of that generation, people had been born and remembered both world wars and indeed the Spanish flu, had already been through so much convulsive change. Uh, their lives had had changed so dramatically over the century between, you know, 1914 up to the mid-1950s, 1945, if you like, towards the end, at the end of the Second World War, that the prospect of a further convulsion was just not what they, what they wanted. Um, I mean, if you there was a, a new television program at the time, which was co called Coronation Street, in which there was a an old battle axe called Ina Sharples, and she represented um, the that particular generation in which the monarchy was on a pedestal, 
the church was on a pedestal and the political politicians did the right thing. You know, Winston Churchill saw us through. Uh, the the this sort of conservatism, the, the Conservative Party had been in power for 12 years by 1962. Harold Macmillan was the Prime Minister at that time. And conservatism with a small c was the name of the game amongst so much of those that particular generation. I, I think that uh, the Wolfenden report that was looking into the legalization of um, homosexuality used uh, code names for when they were talking about um, homosexuality or indeed prostitutes. To, so they would say, "Shall we? Shall we address the Huntley and Palmer situation in order to protect the dignity or not to offend women present?" So they're quite uh, euphemistic, basically. Completely, euph- yeah, completely yeah. sort of euphemistic. So it 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 was a sort of. Um, they wore hats. They 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 did what what was called uncovered, which was when they took would take their hats off. They would doff their hats when somebody of some sort of establishment figure might pass by or walk into a room. The deference, combined with, as I say, this this dread of yet another revolution. And, I mean, maybe we'll talk a little bit later on about the prospect of a third world war, but it was it was ever-present. And so I think it was just, let's stay still, stay as we are. Don't rock the boat, we've had enough. Don't bring your campaign for nuclear disarmament or whatever into our lives. Okay, so to... Um kind of turn that on his head. I mean, throughout the book, you, you you paint a metaphorical picture of forces forming beneath the ice, waiting to be unleashed with the coming of spring. I mean, why were these forces unleashed in the early 60s, as opposed to, say, the early 50s or the early 70s? I mean, why was there such a pent-up frustration with the status quo among the younger population? I think... It- I'm not so sure it was the pent-upness. I think it was a sort of growing consciousness in a generation who had not fought in a war, who were born around the end of the of the Second World War, um, the generation who were looking to um, live a life different to their own, to, to that that their parents had. Uh, they were richer. They had the contraceptive pill, which had just come, albeit in limited quantity, but it was available from 1960 to one, I think, onwards. They wanted to do things differently. They were looking for, they needed a sort of um, way out of repeating what had gone before them. And um, this sort of sense of, 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 of desire for change was um, exacerbated, I think, by the way the Tory party looked. They wore the same clothes as their grandparents. They shot grouse for fun. <laughs> they, so this youthful awareness that they could do something differently, we can do something differently, evolved, I think, out of uh, the coming of age of that particular generation. 
do you, do you think that the bad weather in any way accelerated these changes or did it merely crystallise this image of stasis followed by rapid change? I think that the um, experience of being locked down uh, did certainly present an opportunity for uh, both contemplation about the way things might might change, um, but also the opportunity to work out how things might change. I think that there was time to think, but there was also this uh, business of not being able to leave your house. So the television, the increasing um, power of television, as well as other media, uh, was enormously um, powerful in feeding new thought, new ideas, in particular a programme called Thank That Was The Week That Was, which was a satirical programme known as TW3, went out every Saturday night, had 12 million viewers because the pubs weren't accessible, concert halls were difficult to get to, movies, uh, cinemas were closed because of the cold. And there was another programme on at the same time, also on Saturday night, uh, called Thank Your Lucky Stars, which showcased old pop bands, music bands, but also new ones. And so this opportunity stuck in front of a television set, which was an increasingly um, popular thing to have, uh, had had an in intensely... Um, dramatic effect on the way people thought. This programme, TW3, which was run by young people, David Frost was the presenter, he was 21 or 22, and they uh, were the satirists who bashed all these establishment ways of doing things. Nobody was not fair game, even the Queen, perhaps especially the Queen, but actually especially the politicians. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And to me, that moment is absolutely fundamental as to the way the establishment would still resist the change that was completely essential if we were to move forward and away from this complacent, dishonest way of, of behaving towards the British public. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Now, you just mentioned the, uh, the fateful word lockdown there. Um, now, did you write, uh, did you write this book during the, the lockdown we've, we, we've experienced at the beginning of uh, 2020? And if so, how did that feel? Did you, did you see many parallels between the period you were describing and what you were going through at the time? I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book that had parallels with the lockdown. Gosh, I mean, that, that would have been a dreadful uh, foresight had I had it. But I did um, finish the book in the first lockdown. And the uh, paralysis on the country uh, imposed this time by a virus rather than the weather uh, was, to say the least, uncanny. As I was writing it, and we moved from winter into spring last year in, in, in 2020, uh, the um, way that the natural world was responding to this lockdown struck me as something of extremely, something to hold on to. It gave me optimism. The uh, skies were very clear. There were no aeroplanes above us. I read that the water in the canals in Venice had suddenly uh, revealed all the fish that nobody had seen. And so this sense of renewal and of optimism and that we might emerge from something different and even, may I hope, better, uh, was 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 very... Um, pertinent to me as I was writing those last chapters. What, of course, I did not know is that the virus would, uh, in, in our time now, this virus would continue to be something that remains uh, such a massive challenge that even as I'm talking to you right now, we don't quite know when we are going to emerge from it. But emerge from it, we will, as we did from a snowy winter, as we did from the Spanish flu in a uh, hundred years ago, as we did from two world wars. We will emerge and thought and um, some sort of enforced pause will, I firmly believe, have had some effect to the positive on the way we go forward. I'm glad I asked you that question, actually, because that's made me feel a bit more optimistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good. I think we all need it. <laughs> okay. So, we need it, but we need to believe it too. That's true. That's very true. I think. So, Julia, if you could pick three figures that personify uh, the transformation that was affected in uh, the spring and summer of 1963, who would they be? I'd have to pick the Beatles because they brought that optimism and joy right slam bang into our consciousnesses. They changed the way that we thought about not just music, this joyous, wonderful, 
please, please me. She loves you. This intense positivity. But their their sense that they did no longer had to conform to the conventions of the way stars were supposed to present themselves. They had longer hair. They joshed around with each other. They wrote about things that we we thought about, we knew about. They were not cliches. They were absolute breaths of fresh air. They were unknown at the beginning of the winter, except for in their local area, really. And they toured the country during that winter in a uh, these terrifying conditions, just up and down the Pennines in their battered old van with all their kit, all their stuff pour, sort of tumbling all over them as they negotiated the Pennine way, um, but uh, emerged at the top of the of the hit parade on the first day that there was no frost. And the uh, symbolism of that great kind of wow burst of wowness and music and happiness and energy and youthfulness uh, is impossible to ignore. I would choose Harry Evans. Harold Evans was the editor of the Northern Echo and he his he became one of the most famous journalists of the century became the editor of the london sunday times but at that time he was the uh, editor of the northern echo and his intention to make things better uh, very specifically highlighting the case of pollution uh, of the way women were treated of the way homosexuality was dealt with, became campaigns, lifelong campaigns for this man who was in his 30s at the beginning in 1962 um, and who uh, sadly died last year, but still absolutely there to fight for the underdog, as did the third person I might choose for that particular time um, for the 60s, would be... um, a barrister called Jeremy Hutchinson, who would take on anybody, uh, even if it meant um, foregoing his fee, which he often did, whether it was um, Vassal, a homosexual um, man in the Foreign Office accused of telling secrets to the Russians, uh, or whether it was the great train robbers who he defended, or indeed later on, um, Christine Keeler. He was there. He was a posh man, educated in a public school, but whose sense of getting it right, just as Harry Evans did, was um, paramount throughout their careers and their total heroes, as are all the Beatles. Great. Now, how did the establishment react to this movement of the tectonic plates? We haven't really talked very much about um, the Profumo crisis. It was at the very heart of this winter. uh, And the um, fact that uh, the Minister for War, Jack Profumo, John Profumo, lied to the House of Commons was the... um, way in which the politicians uh, were, and his lie was exposed, uh, were never really quite allowed to get away with this old boy behaviour again. I think that 
when uh, Profumo came into the House of Commons at the end of March and said that he had not had a relationship with uh, Christine Keeler, a model who was also accused of sleeping with a Russian spy and passing on the state secrets of the, of the government. When Profumo said that he had not done these things, when he had done these things, as he sat down in his seat in the House of Commons, Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister, moved towards him and patted him on the back as if to say, well done. And to me, that moment is absolutely fundamental as to the way the establishment would still resist the change that was completely essential if we were to move forward and away from this complacent, dishonest way of, of behaving towards the British public. So they wanted it to be a case of business as usual. Business as usual, let's protect one of our own. Let's condone the lie. It's absolutely outrageous. And by, by the summer uh, of 1963, uh, John Profumo could no longer continue to lie and had to return to the House of Commons and resign. I think it is, I, I, even I would argue that it's difficult to uh, say that the world changed during that winter. But what happened was light was shone on these situations, whether it was race or whether it was politics or some sort of institutional uh, iniquities, light was shone on them. And the um, thing of getting away with it was no longer feasible. It began to melt. There was a sort of melting. So as the snow began to melt, so it exposed these practices, these ways of life that had been entrained for so many hundreds of years began to shift. Now, the American poet Sylvia Plath is quite prominent within the pages of your book. I mean, how did the tragedy of her final months sort of represent Britain in the early 60s? Uh, Sylvia Plath was uh, 30 years old. She was a very little-known poet at the time. She had had her poetry published. She'd had um, uh, her latest poems were regularly in the Observer newspaper, but she was not as famous as her husband, Ted Hughes, who had just left her. Um, Sylvia Plath was, um, had already attempted suicide once, 10 years earlier. She was um, fragile, mentally fragile. Um, but I would, I, when I was reading those last few months of hers, when she had been left by Ted Hughes, had moved into a house in London with her two tiny children and had to cope on her own, try to look after her two children without the network of her family who were over in America or her husband who was off with another woman, it, it toppled her. Same time as it toppled her, it it incited in her a creativity that was utterly miraculous, and the beauty of those poems that she wrote in those last few weeks of her life are 
poignancy such as one will rarely come across because you know they are cries, sometimes screams for help. And I think that now when people are alone in these circumstances, unable to see the people that they love, unable to reach out, unable to be hugged, the mental um, stress of this is so, so understandable and so disturbing. And for Sylvia Plath, it ended in the worst possible circumstances in February on the 11th when she she took her life. Now, you also um, mentioned what you call the pacey, modern, convenient world across the Atlantic, i.e. in America. What impact did uh, that nation have on young Britain's thirst for change in the early 60s? I mean, did was it a sense that they were looking across the Atlantic and thinking, right, we want a bit of that, as it were? Everything in America was bigger, brighter, more, more sexy than anything that we had over here in sort of grey post-war England. They had cars, they had washing machines, they had blue jeans. They had a president of the United States who was young, glamorous, went sailing, was kind of, had sort of tan about him, had 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 a sort of sexy wife. And above all, they had music. They had Elvis. And this sense of this kind of neon, zingy place across the sea, especially, I think, if you were in Liverpool, where the cruise ships and the supply ships and the cargo ships were constantly going across the Atlantic between the two cities of New York and and Liverpool, this sense of what they had over there was um, just so enviable, so desirable. Of course, the wonderful, amazing thing was that a year later, by 1964, this musical emphasis had totally flipped over and it was us with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones who were also in their infancy um, in the winter of 1963. And I write quite a lot about about them. Um, And uh, suddenly they were the dominant ones and we were the people who America was looking to, to be setting the pace. And so there was this really rapid role reversal, as it were, but yes, America and 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 uh, America, the, the the newfound land, the absolute sort of promised place to get to. And speaking of events uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, um, the the Great Freeze of sixty two sixty three took place quite soon, uh, didn't it? After the Cuban Missile Crisis, how I mean, how much did, as you've mentioned before? Th- fear of a third world war cast a shadow over uh, Britain's psyche in this period. Yes, you're right, Spencer. The the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis had taken place in October. Um, Kennedy had been told that if the Russians were to detonate a nuclear bomb, a third of humanity would be wiped out. Uh, and that included Europe. And so he diffused the situation and um, was to add to the 
to the uh, significance of the power of, of America and of Kennedy himself in the public eye. The prospect of following a, a third Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, a, a, a yet another, a third world war, was very much, I mean, my parents talked about it often. They talked about it in whispers, but we knew about it. We had, there was an uh, air raid shelter, a defunct air raid shelter in the garden um, where I grew up. And my brother and I, my younger brother and I, had our stuff in there. We for just in case, you know, I had a comb and an apple and he had his dinky toys. He was five. But we put our precious things down there just in case. Even I was aware of that prospect of this of this atom bomb. Um and spies, you know, spies were everywhere. Philby um uh, disappeared in the January of nineteen sixty two, nineteen sixty-three, sorry. Um the movie of the first James Bond movie came out uh, that winter, Dr. No. Spies were both glamorous and very real, very present. They were in our lives. And a, a third world war was um, was a was a very real was a very real terror. So it sounds like your recollections of this period are, are, are quite vivid. I mean, how much did they influence your writing of this book? How much is this period in your mind as you were uh, committing the words to the page? Um, funny thing about memory is, is that when you um, when you force when you sort of allow yourself to look at photographs or even have conversations with my brother, or whatever stuff comes back. It's a kind of marvelous thing about getting older; it returns. And I was amazed at how much I remembered in very very vivid detail of that winter. Uh, it was an extraordinary winter um, for anybody living through it, really, because of the cold. Um, for me, it was um, made particularly sad because my grandfather's wife, my grandmother, had recently died and he was mourning her. But I think also he was one of those who was mourning an old way of life. So I remember that. But I also remember listening to that music for the first time. And I, the thrill of listening to those four long-haired guys from Liverpool um, was just something that was I'd never come across before. I'm not sure I've ever quite felt that thrill again. It felt like anything was possible. If you've got that music and uh, that sort of excitement of being mucking about in the snow, uh, that was childhood of, 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 of sort of wondrousness. I think I learned about music then. I learned about compassion in terms of looking after my grieving grandfather. And uh, I began to read properly that winter. So I learned about books and all those three things still matter. That was Juliet Nicholson. Her book, Frostquake, The Frozen Winter of 1962 and How Britain Emerged a Different Country, is out now published by Chatto and Windus. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
We'll be back tomorrow when Max Adams will be speaking about Britain after the fall of Rome. (laughs) 